0: show you know this week we start off with a bit of sadness yes we start off with news that american racing legend that most americans probably have never heard of dan gurney passed away at age 86
1: and what made his career so phenomenal that he was legendary and why have americans not heard of him
0: i can't answer as to why americans haven't heard of him. But there's a lot. Of, Dan Gurney actually was responsible for a lot of changes across multiple disciplines. Now, from a Formula One perspective, um, he had he won four Grand Prix from 86 starts, um, driving for a Ferrari, BRM, Porsche, Lotus, Brab- Brabham, Eagle, and McLaren. Um, but the other thing that's pretty big with, with Dan Gurney. And I'll get to some of the stories around this, too. He is the only American driver who has won a Formula One race, who has won a NASCAR race, and won Le Mans.
1: That's uh, not too bad. Too bad he didn't race an IndyCar. And then he had like the trifecta. he,
0: He has won the Indy 500, I believe. And he's had an impact on how IndyCar is today. And the structure that came into place. So let's talk about some of the things that Dan Gurney has done through the years and the impact that he has had.
1: Oh, I know one.
0: Well, that, that's not the one I want to start with. Okay. Okay. The first one, um, back in the 60s, Ford may, and, and, and some may know this, some may not, but Ford made an attempt to purchase Ferrari.
1: Right. It didn't go well. It
0: didn't go well. Enzo Ferrari turned him down. Um, Henry Ford II, as a result, de- declared war, essentially, on Ferrari. Actually, he, his words were that he were, they were going to beat their fill in the next word. Um, <laughs> at which point, he pushed a campaign to build what ultimately became the very first GT40, right. which they then went and ran at Le Mans. And sure enough, beat Ferrari multiple times. Well, Dan Gurney was one of the drivers of the GT40. However, Dan Gurney's kind of a tall guy, or he was kind of a tall guy. And the way the GT40 works, um, tall guys don't really fit well in the GT40. Isn't it kind of like takes their head off?
1: Yeah, I think uh, even Jeremy Clarkson has uh, pointed this fact out. Right.
0: Well, in order to accommodate his helmeted 6 foot 4 body, they created the Gurney bubble to allow space around his head. It was a smooth bubble that fit over the driver's head that gave him enough headroom to race. So, a, partnered with AJ Fort, AJ Foyt, Dan Gurney took the new GT40 bubble and all to victory at both the 12 Hours of Sebring, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Um, And it was part of a four-year streak of GT40 dominance at Le Mans. Four years in a row of winning the World Sports Car Championship. Um, Now, as part of the race in 1967, or winning the race in 1967, is Dan Gurney's next influence on the world of motorsports. And this is the one that you want to go to.
1: Yes. So should
0: should I just tell Dan Gurney's explanation, or do you just want to spill it?
1: I go tell his explanation.
0: Okay. So he said, I was so shocked that when they handed me the magnum of Moe at Chandon, I shook the bottle and began spraying the photographers, drivers, Henry Ford II, Carol Shelby, and their wives. It was a very special moment at the time. I was not aware that I had started a tradition that continues in winter circles all over the world to this day.
1: So if you ever wondered why the winners of the various motorsports spray each other with champagne or in middle eastern countries where alcohol is illegal some <laughs> form water. some form of carbonated beverage um it is all dan gurney's fault yeah that giant mess is all dan gurney's fault
0: now the other little tidbit to go along with this is the bottle Mm-hmm. That Dan had from this, that he shook and sprayed to everyone, it was initially given to life photographer Flip Schulke. He was the one who captured the madness before ducking from the split from the spray, and he had it on d- display in his home for years, but. Given how this all had gone viral and became a thing, you know, before we knew about things going viral and all of that stuff, he actually gave it back to Dan Gurney and it was displayed in his All-American Racer shop for years.
1: (laughs) You kind of do wonder if people do save those bottles.
0: I would guess that probably, like, first wins, Mm. they might get saved. More than that, it probably isn't. Maybe, you know... Other notable events, like if if there's a a win on a 200th race or something like that, um, possibly.
1: Yeah. It'd be interesting to find out what the various racers that win stuff like that do with their bottle.
0: So like we mentioned, America's best run in Formula One is courtesy of Dan Gurney, who won Spa not long after winning Le Mans. In an Eagle Mark I car, which, by the way, was designed by Dan Gurney's team. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Team Penske later won an F1 race in 76, although that was a British-built car. Um, But, yeah.
1: So if you have never heard of Dan Gurney and you're like, what's the big deal? This might be something you'd want to research.
0: Oh, there's more.
1: Oh, there's more. We're,
0: We're not even done yet. Ugh. I mean, this is the impact that Dan Gurney has had. You know, today, you look at an F1 driver as they get in their car, or even back into the mid to late 70s, and they wear helmets that cover their full, their entire face. Mm-hmm. But if you look back into the 60s and earlier at, at these open cockpit races, they're, you know— Safety equipment was your handlebar mustache and and possibly a leather leather polo helmet, maybe some goggles and a cloth wrapped around your face. But that that iconic picture of um, like Jimmy Clark taking the helmet off and removing his goggles and you see the outline of the oil and soot and dirt and stuff like that Mm -hmm. around his face. Dan Gurney was the first driver to wear and he designed the first full face covering racing helmet.
1: No way. Uh-huh.
0: Because he got tired of all the crap getting thrown in the face. Wow. hmm
1: Okay, I did not know that.
0: So for how this whole, whole thing started, he said, I was in Frank Arcello's 4.9 liter Ferrari, and I was trying to overtake a car ahead of me, which fired a stone from under a rear tire. It went right through the windscreen, and it was more akin to a bullet than a pebble. I thought... That would have really smarted. So initially, he, f- he fashioned a leather mouth guard to help with this, but soon adopted the full-face helmet when he saw dirt track motorcycle racers using them in Southern California. Oh. He then went to Bell and had Bell manufacture the new helmets, which had a fixed visor in place of the goggles that were typically worn at the time. The first time it was worn, he wore it in 1968 at the Indianapolis 500
1: wow you gotta imagine how much better that made racing when you're not i mean i've been on a bike with a non-full-face helmet mm-hmm. and with the goggles and you still get pelted with everything and the just the comfort level of having a full-face helmet is quite impressive
0: well the other thing to keep in mind again he was six foot four
1: mm-hmm.
0: which meant he little. stuck <laughs> up a bit you know there was a lot of surface area for all that crap to fly at so of course he got tired of it but it was still kind of slow to catch on
1: well i know from uh, some of the stuff that we have we're watching that in the early 70s they were wearing full-face helmets in formula one because um jackie stewart was wearing a full face helmet in 1970
0: Be- because again he saw what dan had developed right so the next thing is, is and, and this is one that, that is kind of subtle, and you don't really know about it, something called the gurney flap. So as teams were learning about aerodynamics and the impact of wings on the cars and how they performed, um, the 1971 car that Dan's team and his development shop had developed for Bobby Unser, had wings on it, and he complained that it was too slow. So he complained about it. They had some issues. So Dan went and took a look at it, and, and, and this was a car that was basically developed for the precursor to cart and IndyCar in the American Open Wheel Series. But Dan took a look at this. He took the feedback from, from Bobby, and he looked at the wheel, and in about 45 minutes, he fashioned this flap that attaches to the back end or, or to the trailing edge of the tail wing. And basically, it's a little ridge that sticks up. And when you look at it and you see pictures of it, it seems kind of counterintuitive. Why would you want something sticking up from the trailing edge of your wing? But apparently, it stabilized the air enough and actually took care of the the concerns that Bobby had. And the car performed better. Wow. It's been called the gurney flap. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah, airflow behind the flap forms a pair of vortices that deflect air going over the wing and flap combo downwards, creating downforce that sucks the rear of the car to the ground and allows for faster cornering speeds if the front aerodynamics are a good match. Something that's still done today. Wow. And then the last thing, like we mentioned, is that he had a significant impact on how, uh, well, on the series that ultimately became IndyCar today. Um, he organized the U.S. racing series very similar to what was being done by Bernie Eccleston in Formula One and got the the team owners and the drivers to, to start working together to standardize events, standardize cover to get TV coverage, to do all of those various bits, to turn it into more than just a, well, a once a weekend something happened somewhere kind of thing. Okay. And actually helped cause that structure to happen very cool so yeah dan gurney's done a lot of stuff
1: i'm sad that motorsport has lost this legend
0: yeah that most americans have never heard of
1: but on the plus side and not that one is looking for plus sides of of deaths but it is something that's getting um publicity which is allowing people to learn all the things that he gave to the sports
0: Mm mm-hmm um, not quite dead yet. Let, let's clarify here.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Your your favorite e oldie timey not driver, so not <laughs> <laughs> Sir Sterling Moss.
1: Um,
0: it was announced this week, and he's currently eight. Actually, no, he's older. He's he's ninety something. No, he's he's eighty eight now. Oh, um.
1: He doesn't look over, a get, day over 95.
0: He, he's got to be getting close to 89 this year. Um, he His son, Elliot, has released a statement on Sir Sterling's website um, announcing that Sir Sterling is retiring from public life this year. Um, it's a result to just deteriorating health. Um, he's not a young guy anymore. Uh, in 2016 when he was 87 he was admitted to the hospital with a chest infection and spent over 130 days in the hospital trying to recover wow now to put that in perspective this is the guy who in 2010 fell down an elevator shaft in his home broke both his ankles and significant bones in his feet and later in the year was driving
1: yeah that sounds like so yeah Yeah. I I mean, I'm sorry that he is ill and, you know, (laughs) slowing down, Um, but it's, it's, there's also that part of me that he's very much the old school racer Yeah, and he stands, he stands in that old school group and there's something to be said for, sometimes progress needs to keep happening. Um, he was one that did not start to champion the safety of the cars like you hear. Oh, he was very
0: one. much against it.
1: Yeah. And he was just, he was truly, he's like not just the old guard, he's the old, old guard. He's the weekend playboy group.
0: Now, Sir Sterling Moss is considered probably one of the best drivers to never win a world championship. Mm-hmm. Um, The statement on his website posted by his son, Elliot, says to all his many friends and fans around the world who use this website for regular updates, my father would like to announce that he will be closing it down. Following his severe infections at the end of 2016 and his subsequent slow and arduous recovery, the decision has been made that at the age of 88, the indefi- indefatigable man will finally retire so that he and my mother can have some much deserved rest and spend more time with each other and the rest of the family the entire and extended Moss clan thank everyone for all their love and support over the years and we wish you all a happy and prosperous 2018 I got another okay so this week the legal super evil met
1: Okay, so are we done with The Dead and Dying? Yes. Okay. <laughs>
0: Let's yes, we're, we're, we're moving on to, to other topics. <laughs> and other to things. to
1: happier topics? Yes. Like the League of Super the Evil. The League of
0: Super Evil. Um, they've met, and what I didn't, what I have not heard, I was waiting for this, and I'm surprised there's been no leaks about it, is on Wednesday of this week, the Formula One group was supposed to meet with Uh, race organizers from around the world. They're supposed to have a conference to discuss what Formula One Group's plans were for the sport and for promoting the sport. Haven't heard anything, Hmm. which I think is kind of odd because I'd be surprised that the race promoters wouldn't have gone running out to go blab everywhere, and the fact that Sean Bratches hasn't come running out to blab everywhere I think is a little odd.
1: Well, maybe they postponed the meeting.
0: Well, I figured that they would have put an announcement out or something, you know, Autosport or somebody like that would have had word of that. The only thing I can think of is that because contracts haven't been fully set for some of the stuff that they're looking to do, that there's non-disclosure agreements out there. But I don't know.
1: Well, that was my other thing. My other thought. It was either they postponed it or there's non-disclosures around it and or whatever they're doing is so radical everybody's trying to figure out how to react to it.
0: Yeah. I don't know. But – The teams also met Mm -hmm. um, and talked about potential changes for 2019 around bodywork. Okay. Now, and and specifically it was a strategy strategy group that was met. There were proposals aired by five teams. Two ideas were agreed and are set to be adopted in 2019. Now, one of the things that was talked about, was potentially the return of shark fins and T-wings. Really? Because again, McLaren and some of the others have been have, you know, they've been waffling in both directions as to whether or not they're good, but they lose sponsorship space. Right. They are not coming back. That has not been agreed on. What has been agreed on is that the barge boards, those are the boards on the side that help steer air and stuff like that the barge boards will have to be lower allowing for better visibility for the side of the chassis in the area of the driver's legs this is regarded as a prime spot for placing sponsorship oh okay so that's one thing now what we've seen in the past is um team mercedes has done this and i think ferrari and a couple of others have done this of um they mirror the the uh sponsorship on the bodywork behind it on the barge board so no matter either way you still see the logo but it's not a great option True. so this is supposed to clear some of that up the other thing is there will be a flat space at the top of the rear wing end plates with no louvers that will impact logo placement because right now louvers have been placed up there and it kind of cuts up logos that they try to put in the area So that is supposed to go away as well. Um, There was discussion about simplifying front wings with fewer elements also for sponsorship reasons. However, that was not uh, adopted, despite cost savings also being part of the equations. Um, The belief is that the aerodynamic impact would be too great to justify a change on non-technical grounds. But, of course, remember, you simplify the front wings. You reduce the impact of wash coming off the cars in front of you, which means you reduce the degradation on the the front tires of the car behind you or on your car, which allows for the cars to race closer. Truth. So why we haven't seen that move from a technical perspective, knowing that from a sponsorship perspective It's not a bad idea? I don't know.
1: Well, but you give up aerodynamic grip. That is what you give up with that. But you only
0: give up aerodynamic grip when you're not following closely. Right. And that's been the big thing. Because when the cars can follow closely, there's a better chance for better racing. True.
1: Now, there was something else that was discussed in our meetings of League of Super Evil. Mm Mm-hmm. That was increased weight. Everybody gets to, to weigh more. Get to eat. They get to eat. Okay, you have heard me complain, um, discuss, wax poetic as to why more Formula One drivers don't seem to have eating disorders. <laughs> um, and the extreme disadvantage to any man that's over 0.59 um, in Formula One. Yeah. Um. Mark Webber being probably one of the single biggest sort of poster children for this problem. He's six foot something. Um, When he was actively racing, the man was positively skeletal.
0: Well, not just when he was actively racing, but it was more dramatic the last two years of his Formula One career. And even with Jensen Button, especially if you look at pictures of Jensen now, as opposed to last year or, or two years ago, rather. A uh, very very dramatic change in how they look,
1: uh, and that's exactly true. Now, so for years, for the past few years, Formula One has had a uh, a weight, weight requirement. Oh, what
0: a weight problem! A
1: weight problem. <laughs> They've had a weight requirement. Now, the minimum weight on the car, and I I could tell you what the kilos are. It won't matter. Um, was set, and then when they added. Um, when they went to this new set of body before the halo, they added a few kilos, um, which the drivers were hoping meant that they could you know, eat again. But it wound up all going into the body of the right. car. Then with the halo next, this coming year, they've added a few more kilos, which again, the drivers were saying, that could go into my body. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's not happening. In 2019 they are actually separating out minimum weights for a car and driver plus helmet they are setting a minimum weight of i think it's 80 kilos for the driver basically that's 170 pounds
0: it's still kind of light but it's not bad
1: but okay it's not bad um, it's gonna be a, it's still light for somebody that's six foot four.
0: That's my point., it you're still over six feet. 170 pounds is kind of light.
1: But for like Lewis, who is 5 nine, um, some of the guys that are five nine to 5 511, that's not a bad weight. They're running in the 140s now. Yeah. And that that's where it's getting to be anorexic. I've been in the middle of I'm almost finished with reading Jensen's book. And he talks a lot about weight and what he had to do to maintain weight. Now, I think he was trading carbs for beer, but that's some of the (laughs) stories. Um, But he would be eating no carbs, really watching his weight. He's six feet tall. I understand that. But you think about these guys are athletes. They have no body fat. And most recently Sergio Perez by was told by Force India that he needed to lose some weight yeah four pounds
0: well Mark Weber and to be clear this, this doesn't mean that Formula One drivers get to shift off their their physical fitness regimen they, they, they have realized that, Without even taking the weight situation into account, physical fitness is still going to be a very big deal and always will be. Um, Mark Weber talks about in his book, which I just happened to have finished, um, specifically when in his younger days he was not taking fitness as seriously as he should have. And he was driving in one of the – I believe it was one of the Junior Series in Monaco – and had a wreck because he was not on top of his fitness. He did not stay hydrated throughout the whole way through. And as he got deeper into the race, he paid the price. And he, he he was struggling to focus and put it in a wall because of it. So fitness and nutrition and hydration is always going to be a feature of driving in Formula One. There is not going to be the heavy drinking and smoking of James Hunt anymore. Well, uh- and
1: that's been the the sort of one of the big hallmarks of the latest generation of and not even the latest generation this this since James Hunt um, the ones that really did do well because they cared they stopped mm-hmm. smoking they stopped showing up to the track on Sunday with a hangover um,
0: I'm not so sure about that one okay maybe Sunday with they've stopped showing up with a hangover. But from reading Jensen's book and reading Mark's book um, and the stories we've heard about Kimmy, I'm not completely convinced that drivers have not shown up at the track on Thursday and or Friday completely hungover.
1: That is also possible, possibly from the Sunday prior. But um, the deal with setting a minimum weight for driver versus car – prevents the teams from declaring that the driver has to lose weight so that they can put more in yeah, the car. So they can
0: make the car heavier.
1: So, And that's critical because in these past few years, we've pitted driver health against car performance, mm-hmm. um, all to ma- to hit this magical minimum weight because it's logical. The lighter the car, the faster it goes. But to divide those, and this is the thing that, I have to say, is less evil about our League of Super Evil. They've actually recognized that we're doing harm to the physical bodies here. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's a big deal. And I have to give them props for setting a separate minimum weight.
0: It's about time. It's something that's long been overdue.
1: Now, I worry more about the Felipe Massas and the future generations of the Felipe Massas because Massa is not that much taller than me. Mm -hmm. And 170, for me, is not a healthy weight. (laughs) So I I don't know if they're going to have some sort of sliding scale for people that are only in the five-foot range.
0: Well, again, that goes back to the physical fitness that goes with it. And a driver who is running still lower percentage of body fat and is doing the running and doing all of the other various bits that are needed to – maintain a racing form probably will naturally be lower than that number
1: right but that's just it's just something to think about is one of the things we've always said has held nico hulkenberg back is that he's six feet tall yeah and it's really sad that some of these people that are truly incredible race drivers in their own right aren't able to perform in top teams because of what they weigh Becomes a model-like laf- lifestyle, honestly.
0: So, moving on to some the the last driver signings, because the grid is pretty much sealed, with the exception of one seat, and as of this week, that has been resolved.
1: So, all the seats are filled as of this week.
0: Correct.
1: Yay!
0: Sergey Sorotkin is Williams' new driver.
1: So, how many weeks ago was it that you said? We were talking about this test that Sergey was doing, and you said that he was in talks with Williams, but you mm-hmm. didn't think so because Williams was saying no, and you thought that was just really odd no, press. But,
0: no, that wasn't Sergey. That was some other driver who mm-hmm. wasn't part of the, the um, who wasn't part of the talks. Who claimed that he was in negotiation with or he wasn't part of the test who claimed that he was in negotiation for Williams for the seat, and Williams said, um, no, we've never spoken to the guy. We don't know what you're talking about. It was a I different could, driver.
1: I could have sworn that was the Sorokin because no. they had been talking about Kabitza and um, Daresta, and yeah. we were going back and forth between those those two and will they, won't they, will they, won't they, and then Sorokin comes out of nowhere.
0: No, Sorokin was thrown around about the same time that Kvyat was thrown around as a potential candidate. Mm. Um, and, and what we knew coming out of the test, we had heard this almost within days after the test had completed, was that when pitted head-to-head between Kubica and Sorotkin, Sorotkin ran faster. And that was that was what we were talking about was that coming out of that test, it was looking like it was looking less promising on Kubica because Williams was saying that they were looking for the fastest driver. Mm-hmm. So that that's what we were looking at, but we didn't know. Well, yep, Sergey Sorokin has the seat, and it's believed that he's also bringing a financial package worth around 15 million pounds. So let's put this in perspective now. We have Lance Stroll, whose dad bought Williams a simulator and has been funding countless test sessions in previous generation cars so that Lance could learn how to drive a Formula One car and learn the circuits and all of the various bits, as well as whatever money, undisclosed amount, he's been feeding the company and now we have Sergey Sergei Sorokin who's bringing his own check in in order to drive with the team and he has zero Formula One experience
1: that makes Lance Stroll their senior driver yeah how does that make you feel
0: um remember 2013 at Williams yep that's how i feel that's where i think this is going um i think while i don't think it's going to be so bad that towards the end of the season one of the drivers is going to stand up and say i'm not doing well because the team is sabotaging my car i wouldn't expect any level of success and i think it's unrealistic especially given what we expect to see a um higher level of performance from Mercedes, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that Williams is going to be anywhere close for fourth, and I think they're going to have a hard time with fifth. Interesting. And I question as to whether or not the amount of money that's coming from Lance's father and from Sergey's backers is going to make up the difference for falling back another position if not more interesting that's what i think okay now all is not completely lost for robert Kubica. um he has been signed as their reserve and test and development driver which means if for some reason one of the current drivers is unavailable to drive robert would get the call Okay. Unlike what's going on over at Ferrari with Daniel Kvyat, where it is highly unlikely that Daniel would get the call. Robert is officially a reserve driver for the team as opposed to just a test and development
1: driver. Okay, that sounds good. Well, well, I mean, let's face it. The guy has come back from an injury and he's made it back to a test and development driver. Yes, I think that's a parking garage for him. But. At one point, he was never going to drive a car again. So let's be happy he's this far.
0: My my issue isn't the signing of Kibitza as a test and development driver. It's more the fact that Williams has managed to put – and and I get that they like to develop drivers and and they like to go that route. But Williams has put themselves in a position – again – Repeating what we were looking at in 2012 and 2013, that they that it, they are so precarious that they cannot hire a driver who is there on merit alone, or in this case, merit at all. They are strictly looking at the money that the driver is bringing in and whether or not that is something that's going to allow them to, to continue to be a going concern as opposed to being competitive. And that there was nobody in any of the stables anywhere up and down the grid that could come in as a professional driver and, A, lead that team and provide the mentorship and development that was needed for Lance Stroll to actually be useful to the team mm. and be competitive. And the fact that there was nobody available to do that, and now we have two Highly inexperienced drivers. Yaslan Stroll has a season underneath him, but Sorotkin has no season underneath him. And truly, they signed Kibica because they needed to keep, uh, um, not minority, they, they needed to, I, I don't know where that. <laughs> <laughs> they need to keep Martini happy because Martini wants them to have a driver that's over 25 years old, and neither one of of Stroller Sorotkin are over 25. Okay. I mean, it bothers me.
1: No, really. No one can tell. You hide it so very <laughs> well.
0: So let's move to Red Bull. Okay. And— Quite honestly, this was a story that when I saw it, I ignored. Okay. However, after finishing up Mark Webber's book, there's, I think there's more here than the story lets on. So Christian Horner is reported to have met with Daniel Ricciardo to reassure him over uh, potential favoritism regarding Max. Real. And team favoring Max over Daniel. Um, so where I guess this started was when word came out that towards the end of the season, um, Max got the upgraded Renault engine before Daniel did. Correct. Um, Daniel didn't know this at first. It, he found out through the press. Ouch. So he was a little upset about it. Um he said that Christian Horner pulled him aside um, in, in, in talking about the, the, the comments that were made around that upgrade, that he was taken out of, um, out of context, and he was not properly quoted, um, but he said that, um, and he didn't want it to come across that they were favoring Max. Um, he said, according to Christian, fighting, the, the team is fighting for both of you. Max got the upgrade engine in the last few races, and that was the only thing that was ever different. So Daniel says that he doesn't have any concern with it, and that if he did, he would have spoken up about it already. Um, Now, where, the reason why, because initially I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever, who cares? However, you read Mark's book, and Mark talks about his time uh, with Red Bull. And initially, his first pairing at Red Bull was against David Cothard. Right. When David retired, Sebastian Vettel was brought up from Toro Rosso. Sebastian Vettel came through the Red Bull development program and was Helmut Marco's golden child. Helmut Marco, and, and it was a concern that apparently um, Market had, had when he signed with the team, is that Helmut Marco has a History of being extremely hostile and unfriendly to the drivers that he does not
1: back. Interesting.
0: And does not have a great relationship with many, many drivers. Helmet Marco was fully behind Seb because Seb came up through the program. Seb was the golden child and the wonder child. Now, Christian told Mark when Mark signed, Don't worry about Helmet. He's only concerned about the young drivers. But the reality is, as long as I'm in control of this team and as long as Adrian Newey are in control of this team, helmets a non-issue. And you will have our backing. You will have our support. We will defend you. And what actually happened was the opposite, was helmet Marco would... Push the team, push the resources, push the backing, push the press against Seb. And Seb would get the new engine. Seb would get the new new wings and the new aerodynamics. Mark is known for a comment that he made in 2010 at the end of Silverstone. So the way the story goes is that Red Bull had developed a new new front wing for the cars that they were going to roll out in Silverstone. Something had happened, and initially, Mark only got the wing, which made sense because Mark was leading the championship far and away in 2010 ahead of Seb and was doing much better. So, Mark initially got the wing. However, at some point, Helmet Marco steps in and redirects this, and the wing gets put on Seb's car. Now, the reality was neither driver really wanted the wing. They weren't particularly happy with it. They didn't like how it was working. They didn't like how it was running. But it was a new part, and it was taken off of Mark's car and put on a Seb's wing. Mark And, and Seb out-qualifies Mark in the race. But ultimately, Mark wins the race, to which he make, he radios back to the driver. Not bad for the number two driver. Right now mark's position is he didn't really mean this as the stab that everybody took it and and how it came across um and it didn't help that the tone coming across the radio w- was a bit garbled too he he his position is he meant as he's an aussie and they they're, they're kind of smart alex they they kind of he meant it as this kind of wry comment he didn't mean it at the stab at the team that it actually everybody else took it as
1: do you mean the stab that it really was well there's that too
0: <laughs> um but throughout all of the time that mark was at red bull helmet marco was, made it clear that mark was not the favored one and mark was not the supported one. Um, and he hung on anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also says that he lost a lot of respect for Christian Horner because Christian never really stood up for him.
1: That's very interesting.
0: And the only time that the team got behind him was when Dietrich Mateschitz would step in because Dietrich was a fan of Mark.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Now, go, kind of circling back to Ricardo and Max...
0: And, and, and somebody getting a contract in Austin and the other one not?
1: Uh, that wasn't where I was going. Okay. But recently there has been some reports as to what do the drivers actually make. Okay. And recently it was reported that some of what Danny might be feeling could be justified if you look at the sheer numbers alone. Okay. Are you aware that... Max Verstappen's contract runs approximately four million dollars richer than Daniel Ricciardo's.
0: Doesn't completely surprise me.
1: It is reported that Danny makes about uh, six million dollars a year, uh, racing Formula One. Max makes ten.
0: Now, the question that I have is, which contract is that off? Of? the brand new one that was just signed in Austin, or the one that he had when he moved up to Red Bull?
1: Honestly, I don't know. And, That's... and, and,
0: and that would that would be the only question I would have with that. And with that out there, the, you know, the next question is, is that something that uh, Daniel can negotiate in and how that works? I don't well,
1: know. It'll be interesting because the article that I was reading that was given um, salary ranges – was giving what they because it's it's I mean it's notoriously secret what all the different yeah. deals are, but what the the salary ranges are from the entire grid that is set for 2018. So they start with a low of one of the Sauber drivers making about 150 thousand dollars, which, quite frankly, if you think about what you are driving and at the level you are driving, that is pennies. Yeah, that is chump change. I mean, I get that that's over the average American salary, but $150,000 is just not a whole lot of money. And then you go to the far other end, which just indicates the disparity that's within Formula Mm -hmm. One, and the top paid driver, would you like to take a wild guess as to who that might be?
0: My guess is either Lewis or Sebastian.
1: Well, it is one of the two. got a (laughs) 50-50 chance. Narrow it down.
0: Uh, I'm going to go with Lewis.
1: You would be wrong. Really? Yes, it is reported that Lewis's current contract is running him at about $50 million in salary. And this is the salary. It's not the total yeah, cause, deal. Yeah, because
0: that's one of the other questions that I have is, is are we just talking... Baseline salary, or are we talking, we know that a lot of the drivers have it in their contract where they get a bonus for every championship point that they score, a bonus if the team wins Constructors' Championship, and a bonus if they win the World Championship. And some of them, like Seb, reportedly also have in their contract that they get the car they drive in.
1: Yes. Um. So I believe this is just base salary. Okay. So it's reported that Lewis gets about $50 million and Seb gets about sixty so just you know level setting uh, you know when you feel like you've got a few bucks underneath you and you're feeling pretty good about your own personal salary just remember you don't that, have an
0: apartment in monaco
1: <laughs> you know there are two guys that are significantly younger than me um that are both making 50 and 60 million dollars respectively to literally drive around in a circle okay with rights and left hand turns and ups and downs, for about two hours on a Sunday, 21 times a year.
0: No, there's more to it than that.
1: <laughs> oh, I understand that. You know, they,
0: they also have to fly to all kinds of places around the world and, and, and shake hands and sign autographs and meet sponsors and, and that kind of thing, too. I mean, there's that, too.
1: Yes. But I just want to put it in perspective when I hit my hour 60 and my grueling work schedule <laughs> and my own travel that I have to do for my job – and nobody is offering me $50 million to drive around the greater Cleveland area, you know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Okay. for two
1: hours on Sunday. I'm just suggesting that maybe I'm underpaid.
0: Hey, so while we're talking about Lois, yes. okay, this year it has been noted that Team Harmony within Mercedes is a lot better than it was in previous years.
1: Well, it was the camp they went to over winter break. When Valteri came onto the team and they all went into their like Finnish saunas and, and in the deep winter and they came out of their like sweat lodge and they sang kumbaya. Well
0: maybe not. <laughs> Actually Lewis is apparently getting a lot of credit from the team for improving harmony. As apparently he gets along very well with Valteri, and Valteri's personality is very different but as a result of how the pairing went last year toto wolf is saying he's completely changing his philosophy when it comes to driver pairings so what toto had to say he said in the past i always believed that a very fierce rivalry between teammates would be good for the team because they would be pushing each other the lesson i learned is that is probably not true you need two teammates that perform at a high level that keep pushing each other in the car but the rivalry shouldn't spill over into controversy outside of the car. The mindset and a relationship between the two made us stronger, gave an open and honest environment, and fundamentally our very fast, difficult car, we got it into a good place because the two work so well together. The dynamic between Valtteri and Lewis made us develop the car in a very efficient way and made us win the two championships. So not for one second do I regret where we are today wow now if you think it because at first thought okay yeah he didn't have a teammate who was nipping at his heels for a championship but then you look at what was it hungary where valtteri was still in the hunt he, mm-hmm. he wasn't completely out of it and seb was still leading lewis had yet to lead the championship. And Lewis turned around and radioed the team and said, give me a chance to try and make this pass, and if I can't do it, I'll give the position back to Valtteri. And sure enough, he couldn't do it and gave the position back to Valtteri. Do you really think that if that had been Nico Rosberg, that Lewis would have done that?
1: No, and in fact, I think everybody said that, A, it was stunning that Lewis actually gave the position back because he can be so competitive. Mm -hmm. But B that it was so something that they had never seen him do for a teammate like that before. Um, I mean, it, it says something completely about his respect and his willingness to be a team player, which is something you just did not see in the Nico Rosberg years.
0: Yeah. And some of that is is a f- – well, actually, no, because I think – Valtteri is also, I don't want to say, rolling over for him, um, and I don't want to say necessarily that Valtteri's less of a team player, but I think Lewis knew Nico well enough that he knew when and where he could push Nico and Nico would step back, and that if he didn't push Nico, Nico was going to overtake him. Well, with the other piece being that with Valtteri, A, he doesn't know the buttons to push, and B, he's got enough confidence to know, to believe at least, that Valtteri can't necessarily regularly beat him.
1: Well, I don't know what motivates Lewis to choose who he likes and who he doesn't like. I mean, in all honesty. let's yeah. let's, let's kind of be frank about that. I have a feeling that the Lewis Nico Rosberg competition piece, probably well, I'm I'm comp- confident of it. It stemmed out of their old karting days, and if you kind of think about boys, and you know the teen years, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the pushback and some of the, you know. Hitting back at each other doesn't stem from the fact that they had that long, long history. They were competitors through their teens. There's probably lingering whatever. Um, You know, for all you know, Nico stole a a girl that Lewis liked or something. I mean, there could have been all of those types Uh, of things. I think
0: they were nipping at each other's heels for so long.
1: But they were nipping at each other's heels. Lewis never really saw Nico as a racer in his own right, he always saw him as a a competitor to him. Lewis, There's enough of an age difference between Lewis and Valtteri that Lewis has been able to look at Valtteri's career. He's watched him come up. He's seen him earn that spot, not as a constant competitor. Mm -hmm. Does that make some sense? Yeah. And I think that there's some respect. I also think that Valtteri has got one of those personalities where you just want to like him
0: yeah yeah i could agree with that
1: and i don't he doesn't have there's something caustic about nico's personality not mean but just it kind of just grates on you just a little bit and i don't it's the german it's the german it's the same thing that bothers me about the austrian um but you don't see that in valtteri he's generally likable And I don't know if Lewis judges whether or not he's going to like somebody as to whether or not they could beat him on the grid. I mean, he seems to have a fairly cordial and fun-loving relationship with Seb. At times. At times. So, but I don't know how much of that is Seb's issues versus Lewis's issues, too. So, you know. Yeah. That could also play a part of that. I don't. I don't necessarily think that Lewis's affinity to Valtteri is because Lewis knows that Valtteri can't beat him at this point in time, or if it would change if Valtteri started to really challenge him. But I think some of it has to do with the fact that Valtteri isn't dislikable.
0: It may be. I, I, I don't know.
1: I like the guy. Therefore, he got my seal of approval. That's probably why Lewis likes him so much.
0: Uh, certainly. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so moving on. Yes. Another story I kind of dismissed at the time, and I think some of it is it happened probably while we were on vacation. But Gunther Steiner uh, was asked about finding an American Formula One driver for the team, to which he replied that it was not on the top of the team's list. And at the moment, there is nobody ready for F1 in the United States, in my opinion.
1: Really? Really?
0: Well, shockingly, several drivers kind of took exception to that.
1: Were they American?
0: Yeah. Some of them were former Formula One drivers.
1: Please tell me Alexander Rossi was one of them.
0: He has not. Um, actually, uh, over on the IndyCar website, Sebastian Bordes chimed in, also a former uh, formula one driver who made the jump over to indycar um not necessarily a successful formula one driver but he did make the jump he said what he had to say what he told indycar was clearly there is just no consideration they're in their little bubble on their own island either you play their game and are rated on their game or you are just not rated at all i completely understand that the american drivers take it personal because it's not fair But since when is F1 fair, it's never been fair. You can't deny that the pinnacle of open-wheel racing is F1, and you can't blame anyone for wanting a chance and wanting to try. Um, But he also acknowledges that, yeah, his career and Alex Zanardi, among others, really haven't been helpful. He says, it took me four championships in the U.S. and the Formula 3000 championship to finally get an opportunity. And obviously, I didn't really help the Americans because I failed. You see the way people can perceive IndyCar drivers, and Zanardi was before me, scoring zero points with Williams in 99 after back-to-back cart titles and stuff like that. It doesn't turn into a fairy tale. But, and, and it's not just him, several other, Connor Daly was another one who jumped in and said, you know, you don't know that there's no drivers ready to jump into Formula One because you're not giving a test to any of the American drivers. If... A driver doesn't come up through the European series, the Formula One teams don't look at them. True. Now, where I think the, the, well, one of the big issues is that you look at IndyCar, and as much as IndyCar wants to be, not just through the Indy 500, but just in general, believes and wants to be a top tier racing series on its own and believes that it should be a premier motors, open-wheel motorsport at the exact same level as Formula One, look at the driver flow. Look at how many drivers have gone from Formula One at whatever level, and especially, and, and this is the worst thing, drivers like Sebastian Bordes and Alex Zanardi and Alexander Rossi and others who never even managed to fight at the mid-pack level in Formula 1, who then fall down to IndyCar and have much more success, whether that's winning races, whether that's running in the mid-pack, whether that's running for strong teams. How does that really say that IndyCar should be a stepping stone for Formula 1? as opposed to the place where Formula One drivers go when they can't cut it in
1: Formula One. Well, see, I think of it as, I think that the snobbery that's around Formula One is not allowing them to look at it as a stepping stone, where it should be. If you think about it, people that have been given low-end drives that can't compete because they've got low cars i mean keep in mind you can be the most phenomenal driver but if you don't get a good car you're not going anywhere
0: well that's some of it and, and um graham ray um who won if i remember correctly bell island detroit last year both races hmm. in detroit um he had his own comments he, he's specifically going after and and i don't Maybe going after is not the the right way to put it, but calling out Fernando Alonso and Fernando's Indy 500 appearance. What he had to say is that everybody in Formula One repeatedly says Fernando Alonso is the best. You hear that a lot. Name me one rookie that ever got a full day of testing by themselves to run around the speedway. Never happens. Now put him in an Andretti car, which the last five years have been the cars to beat. You've got a special talent and the best car with a lot of testing. Put those pieces together and you're going to be successful. Bring Hamilton over. He'll do that too. Bring Vettel over. He'll do that too. Fernando, he's awesome. I love the guy. His approach is all racer and we need more of those guys in this world. But bring him to Belle Isle and give him no testing like the rest of us. Different story.
1: hmm But I go back to Fernando came over into... IndyCar he got testing he'd never run on an oval before he got some practice that okay not every rookie oh no he got a
0: private run
1: he got private (laughs) runs and things like that I get all of that but Alexander Rossi Mm
0: -hmm.
1: won the 500 yep wasn't that his rookie year yep so you know let's kind of put that into some perspective Fernando didn't win the 500 he, he got,
0: didn't, but he was pretty dang close until the Honda was a Honda.
1: All right. Well, until the- well, bo- l-
0: Actually, bo- let me rephrase it. The Honda racing engine was a Honda racing engine. Okay. <laughs> but
1: he wasn't, I mean, he he wasn't going to win it. But yes, I mean, he had all the special ability, all the special things handed to him. And Alexander Rossi won it. And won it without any gas in his car. So let's just kind of remember that part too. Yeah what i'm trying to say is if formula one actually looked at top drivers from indycar as a possibility for a influx into the sport and not just the european karting series we would be looking at drivers at the top of their formula one career at their indycar career Mm -hmm. to come into top to mid-pack teams in formula one as opposed to
0: let, let, Top let's of their put IndyCar him in a manner going that's barely, into manner. Yeah, let's put him into a manner that's barely survived. But Rossi, to to be clear, Alexander Rossi wasn't driving an IndyCar when he dropped when he went to Manor. Correct. And neither was Max. Yeah. Ne, neither was 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 Max Chilton. They started with Marussia. They started there and then went down. Well, and in Max's case, Max didn't even go to IndyCar. He went to Indy Lights and then came up to IndyCar.
1: That's my point is Formula One has such blinders on for looking for talent. They're only looking to one place. Yeah. So when people get to Formula One and they're given a bad car and, you know, I'm sorry. Well, you can win every series you've ever been touched. And if you are given a mid-pack car, you're not going to win races. Look at Nico Hulkenberg. The man went every series he was in until he was in Formula One and he had a lackluster Formula One career. It doesn't make him a bad driver.
0: Yeah, and but I, it also depends on where you get that car and whether or not you can take advantage of the opportunities that show up. But the, the, the question is, okay, Formula One gets, what, two young driver tests a year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And through that, those two young driver tests formula 1 has to de- a formula 1 team has to decide do they grab a european championship driver and put them in that car and evaluate them and do they do two days with that or one day with that or do they grab an american driver how and, and how do you determine Especially since the racing is so different, the tracks are so different. How do you make that call that the driver in IndyCar is at least on par from an evaluation standpoint as to whether or not to give him that young that young driver test to the European driver? And I, and I don't have that answer. Um, but but that's one of the questions that Formula One needs to, to answer. Or, or, well, any of the sports need to answer is a how you do that and yeah there's the option that you can turn around and, and give up p1 seats we've seen that happen quite a bit um for for free practice one to, to throw a driver in there and let them them let them see what they can do as well but with the opportunities to test and evaluate young drivers and new drivers in general how do you bring that in how, how do you level set that Especially when your American drivers don't drive on anything similar track-wise as Formula One drivers. They're not down in Mexico City. They're not down in Austin. They don't drive—none of, unlike, say, Formula 3000 or or any of the the other series, they don't hit Barcelona, they don't hit Silverstone, they don't hit any of the tracks that Formula One cars drive on. So the reference points that the Formula One teams have to evaluate drivers, at least on like-to-like tracks, aren't there.
1: Well, I think, frankly, that IndyCar—and this is probably the reason they don't go to Austin—is IndyCar, if they wanted to—IndyCar likes to see themselves as the pinnacle also.
0: Well, they they don't go to Austin because Texas Motor Speedway doesn't want them in Austin.
1: We'll see. There you go. Um, But— Indy wants to see itself as the pinnacle also. Mm-hmm. And so in their mind, in IndyCar's mind, they're at a, a rivalry to F1.
0: Yeah,
1: You're trying to make them, in your mind, a stepping stone to F1 as a feeder to them, which brings them down a notch, and they don't want to be there. Well,
0: they, they don't want to be there, but again... It you it, it, it's hard to be a feeder or to even consider yourself a pinnacle when the driver migration from one to the other is the drivers that can't cut it in this series end up in your series
1: yes but how many formula former formula one drivers are actively racing in indycar versus the percentage that are coming up through the indycar theater series Remember, Juan Pablo is no longer in Formula One. Juan Pablo's not,
0: but will power you, Sebastian Bourdais. Um, actually, I don't think Esteban G- Gutierrez got a seat this year. Uh, but you've got Max. You've got Alexander Rossi. There are there, there are quite a few. Kay. Is it fifty percent? I don't know. But there are quite a few that have spent time in Formula One seats and. Um, if they're lucky, may have won a race, but probably most of them haven't even done that.
1: You named four, possibly five, out of 20 seats. I'm just going off the top of my head. I understand that, but you're talking about like a quarter of the grid. And we know people are coming up through the other absolutely. There's a whole scholarship program to get them. We are going to see Stingray Rob at some point. We know that.
0: But, I mean, to to your point, and and I think we're agreeing here, of – there's nothing that says that somebody like Joseph Newgard, who won the IndyCar championship isn't good enough to drive in Formula One other than the fact that Formula One won't give them a chance. And maybe that's the thing is, yes, we know that you can come down from IndyCar or, or from Formula One into IndyCar, but maybe there should be consideration of the guy who wins the, world champ, or, or who wins the IndyCar championship at least gets a test. Now, how that works when you have somebody like Scott Dixon who keeps winning it, I don't know, but
1: <laughs> but the problem is that's not an IndyCar's best interest. That's what I'm trying to make the point of. If you say that the the winner of the IndyCar Championship gets a test in Formula One, you have subjected yourself to being a feeder series. You have taken the the pinnacleness off of your own worldview because you're saying there's something broader out there.
0: From IndyCar's perspective, yes. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But if you're Formula One, what do you care? If you're a a Formula One team looking for the best drivers, what do you care whether or not IndyCar wants to be considered a feeder series or not? So yes, it's not IndyCar's best interest to promote that and to act that way and, and to try and help boost these drivers into Formula One. But if you're a Formula One team looking for the best drivers, what do you care what IndyCar wants?
1: Well, I understand that if you're a Formula One team. I mean, it would be like turning. What you just proposed would be the equivalent of turning around and saying, world champion winner of Formula One should get a test in an IndyCar. You think Lewis is going to go do that? Oval oh, we'll scare the Jeepers out of Lewis. So that's not going to happen. But Lewis doesn't I, need to test it w- IndyCar. No, I,
0: I wasn't talking that way. I was talking IndyCar. Go.
1: I understand that. You are regulating IndyCar to a feeder series for Formula One. I'm trying to tell you that I don't think if IndyCar has any desire to be a feeder into Formula One.
0: No, what I'm saying is if you're Haas, if you are supposedly an american team and you want to promote american involvement in formula one then you should be open to hey an american just one indy car which is the premier open wheel series in the united states maybe if nothing else from a pr standpoint we should throw him in our car and see what he can do
1: well yes from a pr standpoint you should definitely do that but if you're sitting in ferrari's back pocket you're never going to be allowed to do that Haas is an American team in a name only. They are a junior Ferrari team. Just put that in your tailpipe. I don't know.
0: Because I also don't ever expect that even if, say, a Joseph Newgarden made it into Formula One, I can't imagine that we will ever see a Menards logo on the side of a Formula One car. No. No. So moving on. Yes. Speaking of Formula One teams, Cyril Abitbull has been talking about the state of the facilities in Enstone.
1: they have been talking about this for a while.
0: Um, on and off, yeah. Um, what he says is that um, when they bought the team, when they took over the facility, now keep in mind, this was a team that Renault used to own. When they bought the team and took over the facility um, in, at the end of 2016, the facility was about 10 years out of date. Now, he says that this is not only due to a lack of investment from Jenny, I, who owned it when it was Lotus, but at the end of the last time that Renault owned it, it was from a lack of investment from them, too. <laughs> so they were part of the problem. Okay. So they're still working on it. They're still playing catch-up, um, but they're not there yet. Hey, remember last week when we mentioned the, the Autosport article with, with Cosworth and how Autosport – is Cosworth saying, hey, we, we want a partner in Autosport through the picture of the Aston Martin logo in there?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, hey, Cosworth came forward and said, we'd really like to work on a partnership with uh, Aston Martin. I'm sure they would. <laughs> We've been working with them before.
1: We think it'd be really good for Formula One. We'd like to do that. <laughs> I am sure they are very interested.
0: Now, the good news coming is that we are closing in on the start of the 2018 season.
1: Has the countdown started? Uh,
0: No, only because I haven't gone and looked up what what the number is. It was 65
1: days the last time I looked, but that's been, I think, a week ago.
0: However, as we get closer to the end of January and the start of testing in February, we are starting to hear when cars are going to be revealed. Okay. For starters, now we already heard that – ferrari what their date was um however mclaren will be announcing its new renault powered mcl32 on february 23rd the week before 2018 preseason testing begins ferrari's february 22nd toro rosso has also announced theirs uh unveiling which will be on the 25th okay um toro rosso did not uh which which took the, the the honda power supply that mclaren didn't want um they're launching their car on the evening before the first test um mercedes has also announced that they will be launching theirs on february 22nd okay. um their event will take place at silverston with shakedown runs before an unveiling event at lunchtime um that will now lunchtime local that'll be streamed online they're doing a uh a drawing for and my assumption only because mercedes seems to have forgotten that there are north american fans is that it's only going to be open to uk and, and european fans but they're doing a drawing where uh they are going to bring a fan and their guest to the unveiling to observe it
1: oh you can observe them take a sheet off of a car well
0: yeah pretty much um I also wanted to point out, I need to pull it up because I didn't have it handy. I forgot about this.
1: Okay, so something I learned this week while you're pulling that up. Okay. Just because you're talking about unveilings, which means we're going to start talking about liveries and how much orange will be on the McLaren car and whether or not white makes you go faster on the Ferrari. I learned an interesting tidbit that you probably already knew and all of our fans knew, but I did not know. (laughs) Um, So I'm sharing that I am catching up. In the history of Formula One, Um, It used to be in ye olde dark ages, like in the 50s, that every country's car had a specific color. Yes. Um, That's where we get the British racing green. Mm -hmm. The car and the company to buck this trend was Mercedes. They came to the circuit with an unpainted car, which is where the silver arrows came from. Um, but I forgot what, co- what color was Germany at the time, but they showed up on the grid whatever year that they decided to do this and they didn't paint their car. And that's how they came, came silver arrows. I thought that was an interesting piece of trivia. Um, I wish I remembered what other colors of the cars were. I want to say that France was yellow. No, and
0: France, I believe is blue.
1: Was France blue? I,
0: I would know more if I knew this was coming. Cause there's a, it's on Wikipedia. I okay. have found it. Um, Yeah.
1: But, like, one of the countries is yellow, and one of the countries is white, and one of the countries is blue, and Britain was green. That much I remembered.
0: And there's a lot of countries that don't have colors. Italy is red.
1: Ferrari, yeah. Yeah. But I just found that very interesting.
0: So, what I was looking for. I got an email from McLaren this week announcing that in partnership with Hilton – they are bringing back what they called Night at McLaren. So this is going to happen at the McLaren Technology Center um, the weekend of the Australian Grand Prix. What they're doing, they did this back in 2016. They partnered with Hilton to provide what they call the ultimate Grand Prix watch experience and sleepover combined.
1: They're doing a lock-in!
0: They actually are. <laughs> um, so... And they're doing this at the headquarters. Mm -hmm. What they're setting up is Hilton beds, and they're apparently bringing in what they say are hotel like amenities um, or hotel room amenities. We don't know what those amenities are, but they are setting up Hilton beds in the lobby area of the McLaren Technology Center in between all of the cars. So guests coming th- that night, which is going to be the 24th and 25th of March, will spend the night in the lobby areas among the cars in the bed. So you know you don't need to bring a sleeping bag, but it's also not private at all. The, the, the picture is just the beds are all lined up in the area. So you and 40 of your, your closest, new yeah, your, your new strangers and best friends um, will be spending the night in the McLaren Technology Center in the lobby among the cars.
1: Okay, one part on of me says hand- this
0: is really cool and then the other part of me says, "No way
1: okay, That was exactly the way I was feeling. I mean like one hand the like inner 13 year old of me is like lock in. that's like awesome.
0: <laughs> At McLaren Technology I am going to the cinema to, to, to the simulator
1: i know we're gonna
0: go play in a wind tunnel
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna go put my pjs on and sit in a car i mean seriously do
0: do you remember the the tuned where they're in the wind tunnel and the professors in there and and lewis and jensen that would be us yes
1: okay so there's that part of me that's like that would be so cool because it's the inner 13 year old in me the other part of me is like okay I'm in my mid-40s, which means probably some other people that would do this would probably be about my age, but possibly some older people. And I don't want to see them in their pajamas. Yeah. And they probably are a lot of people that snore. Yep. And somebody's going to do something inappropriate.
0: You know you're not going to sleep well.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, there's all of that. But nobody ever sleeps well at a lock-in anyway. But I'm in my mid-40s. Sleep is kind of important <laughs> now. <laughs> but, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, padding around an old uh, world championship car, like, I'm so going to totally touch it, even though it's behind yeah. the velvet ropes. <laughs> I'm going to touch it. I and think the
0: security guard's asleep now.
1: I know. Everybody get
0: in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't make the race car noises too loud. You'll wake them up. <laughs>
1: seriously <laughs> how many photos are gonna get taken with somebody sitting on a tire I mean yeah. seriously
0: um, so it looks like we're the, the Americans are not going to be the only ones with questionable Formula One coverage coming next year word has come out that free-to-air television broadcasting in Italy of Formula One br- races is being slashed now originally, um, RAI, which is the national broadcaster in Italy, carried all the races. However, um, I guess they didn't want to pay as much as they had been. There was not a financial agreement that came into place that was good for all the parties. So if you live in Italy, you will get one race free to air in 2018, and that's going to be Monza.
1: I was going to say that's Monza.
0: Everything else, you're going to Sky Italia. Ooh. Yeah. That's rough. So now my last story. Now, I freely admit with this last story that truly, with the exception of our fans that grew up in the New York, New Jersey area, this means absolutely nothing. That, and if there's any fans who happen to like NHRA, this story means absolutely nothing. And this sound right here will mean nothing to you. Uh Funny car fans, get ready for the spring Funny Car Bonanza this Sunday at Raceway Park, Englishtown, New Jersey. So, Raceway Park in Englishtown, New Jersey, is um, pretty much legendary in the NHRA, and with hot um, with funny cars and drag racing, um, they've got a quarter mile drag strip that has hosted the NHRA Summer Nationals event for a very 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 long time um as a matter of fact they started playing that little clip right there um that that laughy voice that's over 50 years old that that was the signature announcement to all of their ads if you lived in a New York New Jersey tri-state area from about 1960 all the way through the 80s you knew that sound because it was on all the radio shows and all the radio broadcasts um well it was announced this past week that Englishtown, that Raceway Park in Englishtown is closing their quarter-mile drag strip. Um, they're still going to be hosting some other events. They've apparently uh, built a drift course that, because that's been really popular. That's going to remain open. Some of the other smaller events. But the NHRA quarter-mile drag strip that has been such a fixture of Raceway Park for... 50-plus years, it was announced this week, is closing. And it's closing because they apparently reached some sort of a financial agreement with insurance auto auctions. Now, insurance auto auctions after Hurricane Sandy paid Raceway Park to store cars damaged from Hurricane Sandy on the drag strip. And it's believed that a similar deal has been negotiated. Oh, wow. Yeah. But a very, very big piece of auto sport history in the New York, New Jersey tri-state area is partially shutting down operations. I mean, like I said, you know that sound if you lived in the area. If you lived within about five to seven miles of the track, your summer nights, especially on the weekends, were punctuated by the cars on the drag strip. You could hear them just standing outside all that seems to be going away
1: so silent nights in English town
0: yeah
1: um I didn't grow up in that area so I have no connection to the story whatsoever like like, like I said like I said
0: (laughs) it means nothing to you it means nothing to anybody who has not grown up in a New York New Jersey area or did not follow NHR racing at all the story means nothing but it's actually a fairly big deal to anybody who's from the area
1: okay Well, I'm terribly sorry for your loss. (laughs) I got nothing. And on on the uh, idea that I got nothing, I'm going to encourage our fans to send their sympathies (laughs) (laughs) via our Facebook page or our website. Um, You can always sign up via and listen to our podcast and your podcast delivery system of choice. And again... guess what that point we'll call it a show hey you know it's not
0: nearly as big a deal as the death of crazy eddie antar it's close
1: okay so obscure (laughs) new york new jersey references for a hundred alex and now we will close the show